And this is Seattle's Morning News. A public memorial be held Friday for longtime Seattle business owner Art Oberto, who passed away in August at the age of 95. Our resident historian Felix Bennell is here. He caught up with Mr. Uh, one of Mr. Oberto's sons for a look back at the life of the man who had proclaimed himself the pepperoni pusher <laughs> and for a preview of this Friday's event. Felix brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Morning, Dave. Yeah, I assume everyone is uh, familiar with Oberto meat products like their beef jerky or their cocktail pep or various other uh, specialties they've had over the decades. Constantine Oberto, an immigrant from Italy, was the founder back in 1918. His son, Art, took over the business back in 1943 when Constantine unexpectedly died. and Art was just 16 years old. Uh, classic family, classic American story of success. Um, Art Alberto's passing really it's the end of an era of 20th century post-war economic boom, Seattle area retail celebrities. That's a lot of modifiers, yes. I realize. But the thing about it is his personality was just as enduring as a product he was selling. That's a rare combination. We've had some products that had no people associated with them. We've had people pushing products that are now forgotten. But he was both. Um, he grew the meat business, became a local celebrity, all in service of moving the product. And not unlike Ivor Hagland of the seafood restaurant yeah. chain, I consider those two guys to be roughly the same stature. Um, Alberto bought a 1959 Lincoln sedan and painted Alberto colors, red, green, and white like the Italian flag, which was his daily driver, as well as a regular in local parades, the Jerky Mobile, right up there with a Lincoln towing pink tow truck, in my mind, and that local vehicle hall of fame, if ever were such a thing. Can't think of any other famous local vehicles out there. If I'm forgetting one, uh, let me know via the text line. Now, Art Alberto touched a lot of lives before he passed away in August. The celebration of his life this Friday night at Mohai, says his son Larry, won't be about someone standing up in front of a room with a microphone. It's about sharing stories. We really want people to sit and reminisce and tell stories to one another and mingle and meet new people um, from different decades and eras that may be there from different parts of my dad's life who felt this connection. So with Larry Alberto's help, I wanted to get a head start on the story sharing. Um, Larry told me one of his earliest memories of being a young pepperoni pusher was as just a very little kid, probably 1969, giving out free samples of sausage they called Cocktail Pep at Six Stadium. That's the old baseball park on Rainier Avenue where the Seattle Pilots played their one season that year. It all begins with Art Alberto driving the jerky mobile into the stadium parking lot with Larry Alberto in the back seat, stationed at that back window of the Lincoln, which has a unique, a very unique feature on that car. The rear window rolls down in a 59 Lincoln. They roll down. So, so basically, I'm throwing cocktail pep out across this land yacht trunk. And we end up getting swarmed and mobbed. And my dad just yells, Larry, throw the box out. <laughs> and I throw the box as hard as I can, pushing it out of the back. People scramble and he punches the gas. <laughs> it gets out of there. Now, uh, Larry says behind that showman facade, Art Alberto was seriously into self-improvement and constantly sharpening his skills throughout his life. This meant attending night classes at business school and going to special business seminars. Now, he's a busy guy, and to help retain what he learned, Art Alberto specially modified a briefcase by cutting a hole in the side of it and adding a key piece of hidden equipment. And in this briefcase was a reel-to-reel recorder, and then it migrated to a cassette recorder. So he would record all these night classes of business school and then he would have, he'd listen to them when he was shaving or he had a pillow and a speaker under his pillow. 
and he would <laughs> review even though he, so he would secretly tape all these business seminars against I'm, the rules. I've, I've done a little secret taping myself, I have to admit, but not to Isn't that extent. slightly illegal? Well, yeah, don't tell the attorney Only general. Slightly, yeah, right. I think the, the statute of limitations is long past. <laughs> yeah. Now, like so many local businesses, Ardo Birdo got interested in sponsoring a hydroplane. It makes perfect sense here in the Northwest. The year was 1975. Alberto hired a veteran driver named Chuck Hickling to compete at Seafair. But Larry Alberto says his dad wasn't that interested in actually winning the race. First boat he sponsored was Chuck Hickling, and he wanted Chuck Hickling to drive by the shore and wave this big vinyl stuffed sausage at the crowd on the beach. And <laughs> Chuck Hickling was all was all upset and mad at him because <laughs> because we're a race team. <laughs> Sponsoring a boat was just another way for him to push his pepperoni sticks and go meet the people. We need a Cairo hydroplane, actually. That's a side note there. Um, one, one more memory here. You know, over the years, I've, I've tried my best to use these history interviews as a way of stealing secret recipes for local products like Johnny's Seasoning Salt or of course. You know, Mountain Bars, Appleton Pilots, yeah, yeah. even the Snitter. You know, sometimes you catch people off guard, right? Now, Alberto recipes for the spices and their products go way back to 1918, to founder Constantino Alberto, and back to Italy before that. Now, the Alberto family sold the company four years ago, but I thought I'd finally hit the jackpot when I asked Larry Alberto where the secret recipes were kept. The combination used to be M-I-L-K something else. <laughs> I remember it. And it was this big, it was this huge, it was a huge safe, maybe three and a half feet tall, cubed on wheels. And that's where the recipes were. So he gave me part of the combination, but he doesn't know where that old well, safe actually ended. Why don't you ask him for his social security number <laughs> yeah, while you're at exactly, it? Exactly, date of birth. <laughs> so the celebration of Art Alberto's life is this Friday night at 7 p.m. at Mohai at Lake Union Park. One last note. As part of the interview, I asked Larry Alberto if the jerky mobile, that 59 Lincoln, was that going to be there parked outside of Mohai this Friday? He said, hey, what a great idea. Apparently, it's in storage down at the factory down in Kent. Uh-huh. It, they're going to dust it off, and they, they tell me, it's not for sure, but there's a good chance the, the 59 Lincoln will be parked outside the museum this Friday night, all because of the dumb idea of some annoying, irritating that? radio historian pestering local business people. Wouldn't be the first time. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> This is Seattle's Morning News, Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And pickleball, invented right here in Washington State, is now so popular it's getting its own research study. And this was a subject of a piece in the Washington Post by Kellen Song, who joins us now. And, and you were, this research had to do with whether pickleball delivers as much exercise as promised? <laughs> yeah, it kind of looked at the exercise intensity you know, your heart rate zones and how much exercise and intensity of exercise you're getting during pickleball. So what's the verdict? You know, there's different ways to look at it. It's not quite as vigorous as some other sports, um, but it's it delivers moderate intensity exercise. Federal guidelines recommend one to 50 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week. Mm -hmm. And by playing pickleball, if you're doing that pretty frequently during the week, you could reach those marks. Now, you, the headline uh, for your article is pickleball is popular, but how much exercise are you really getting? Which has sort of a skeptical tone to it. The sport is exploding, you know, and now there's professional yes. players. There's, you know, there's at the Washington Post, we wrote about a 14 year old prodigy that's a professional uh, pickleball player. So I think it depends on how you're playing it. 
I think it is, according to some data, you know, you're not getting as many steps as if you're going on a, like a brisk walk. It's not going to be quite as vigorous as some other sports, you know, singles tennis. So it's not quite, if, if that's what you're looking for in terms of kind of your vigorous intensity exercise, you probably won't get that. But in terms of meeting guidelines, federal guidelines of, you know, how to stay healthy, especially for older adults. I think this study, the majority of the participants were older adults. So I think for older adults, this is a good exercise. You know, the answer is, yeah, if you're going out there a couple times a week and playing pickleball, it is good for your health. Yeah, I think the study found that players average 3,300 steps uh, an hour. So it's not the 10,000 steps you're supposed to get, but I mean, how many people are getting 10,000 steps a day anyway, right? Right. And, you know, with pickleball, I don't know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have already played the sport, but you're in a pretty small space, you know, compared to a tennis court. So you're not really moving and sprinting around a ton, but there's a ton of fast points, right? You you go up to the net, you're volleying back and forth. So it's definitely active. You're just, you're, you might not be taking as many steps as say, you know, tennis or walking, running, and especially in doubles when you're, you know, sharing the court with someone else. Yeah. Have you played yourself? I have. I played a, I, I play a little tennis. And so uh-huh. I, I wanted to give uh, Pickleball a shot, too. I'm, I'm not, a, you know, I, I don't want to pick sides in this debate. But, yeah, it's fun. I can see why people get into it. Yeah. Now, you're a Washington Post reporter. It is your job to be completely objective. So how, exactly. how, how did they uh, how did they manage gathering? How did they gather all this data? This is very precise data, including heart rate, of course, uh, steps, calories. How, how did they gather all this? Two ways. So they use an accelerometer, which measures like uh, your your movement, your steps, acceleration, and also a smartwatch for your heart rate. And the researchers, after going through this, did did they recommend pickleball as an exercise, or did they think it was overrated? <laughs> well, the researcher, the, the so the lead author of this study, and I interviewed her, uh, Sandra Weber. She called herself a pickleball enthusiast. So uh-huh. you know, I think she combine kind of her interest in, in her research and um, pickleball. So I think she would recommend pickleball for many people, but also in, in an article I mentioned in, in my conversation with Sandra, it's like uh, she mentions there are some risks involved. There are still some quick points, especially at the net. So she mentioned that tennis elbow, which I guess maybe we call pickleball elbow in the future is, a, is you know, a, a common injury that she's seen as uh, you know, as a researcher and also Something that I didn't even think about that she mentioned is that since you're so close to the net and so close to the other, your opponents, that there is a potential risk for eye injuries. You know, if you're, yeah. someone hits the ball towards your head or even some, your partner swings the paddle. I also know for older adults, uh, falling is, is a concern. You know, you're making, you're making quick movements. So there are risks involved. I, I guess the takeaway that I got from this is that. It's great to get exercise, any exercise, but if you're looking for the kind of exercise that would reach the guidelines, you have to play a lot, like four and a half hours a week, right? Yeah, that's the math that the Sandra Weber and her team came up with. And so, yeah, it, it is a lot. You have to commit. And um, I think some of the pickleball players I spoke to would say that they're doing that anyway. You know, pickleball players who are obsessed with the sport or, or really into it, I think they're playing you know, several times a day. And then it can, you know, your social, I think that one of the things that this study doesn't look into, but I know other studies have is that there's this social aspect. You know, I think a lot of people get into it because it's, it's, it's great social activity for maybe for older adults. 
And so those hours can add up. But yeah, you do have to commit. It's not just like a once a week type of thing. Yeah. Actually, I think the real takeaway from this study is that our little locally invented sport has finally made the pages of the Washington Post. Oh, it's been it's everywhere. I mean, you know, my sports colleagues have been writing about it. One of the you know top pickleball players in the world, Ben Johns, who I quoted in the article, he's from Gaithersburg, Maryland. So Uh it's spreading everywhere. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Kellen. Kellen Song of the Washington Post. His article is headlined Pickleball is popular. But how much exercise are you really getting? Kellen, thanks very much. Thank you. Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien. Dave Ross is here. We have Mickey Gomez in for Sully. Uh, you've probably heard all about this this week. It's one of the biggest stories. It's it's garnering international headlines now for University of Idaho students dead. And it's been the action of officials in Moscow, Idaho, in charge of investigating their deaths that have created so many more questions than answers. And uh, we wanted to get to the bottom of the answers. KXY 4 News Now News Director Melissa Luck joins us. Uh, Her team has been all over this down in Moscow, Idaho. Melissa, good morning. Good morning, Colleen. Now, your team has been, I've been watching them on Twitter. They're all over this. Uh, You know, you're leading a lot of the information coming out of here, driving for these answers. And new this morning, it seems, at least to me over here, sort of at a distance from this case, that officials, police are starting to change their tune. At first, they said there's no threat to the public. Now they're saying be vigilant. What's that about? Yeah, Colleen, it's been absolutely a crisis of misinformation from the very beginning. We knew about the murders on Sunday. And in fact, when we first heard about it, it took hours to get information. We had heard one homicide. And by the end of the day, Sunday, we had heard four students were dead. So obviously changes everything in a small town like that, a college town uh, that's about 80 miles south of Spokane. And the information right away was that there was no threat to the public. And uh, immediately, as you can imagine, parents of University of Idaho students were like, we're not taking any chances. It's almost Thanksgiving break. They came and got their kids. A lot of kids left campus this week because they're really scared. But really, the lack of information from Moscow police uh, has really created a lot of confusion here. They have not done a news conference. In fact, yesterday was the first time we spoke to a police officer, and that was just a phone interview. Um, he had the mayor of Moscow tell the New York Times that this was a crime of passion, and when, when pushed, he stepped back and said, well, you know what, we actually don't know what it is. I just, I just use process of elimination. Uh, you know, the families of these kids are having to come out and, and correct statements. There's a ton of speculation. So it, it's just been one confusing um, day after another. But at the end of the day, we're trying to rem- remember in our newsroom, we have four families that should have been planning Thanksgiving dinners for their kids and planning their funerals instead. And right now, as far as all the information, there's a killer still at large that that committed what the coroner said was an incredibly gruesome crime. Mm, yeah, that was another thing. The coroner coming out to hold a, I don't know if it was a formal press conference, but definitely gave statements to the press, which we rarely see. What did this person say? Yeah, that's the other thing that's unusual. I mean, coroners are, you know, usually elected officials. You're not, it's, it's different than being a medical examiner. She is not the one that's performing the autopsy, but she did respond to the crime scene. And it's very, very unusual and strange to have police not talking and really holding a lot back at this point and then have a coroner literally give on-camera interviews to everybody who asked yesterday. Um, we appreciate the information. Obviously, more information is better in this case. But, um, you know, she had said it was a gruesome crime scene. She did say, which I think is really important for people to know, that the four dead students, none of them are suspects. 
So there's a lot of speculation about, you know, oh, could it be, you know, people watch too many crime shows, I think is the answer here. But, um, but, 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 you know, trying to remember that these are four innocent kids and and there's no indication that any of them did anything wrong here, um, except for victims of crime. So we appreciated that the coroner um, stepped up and gave that information. She also said there was no indication at the scene of, of drug use because mm-hmm. of that there was a fentanyl rumor immediately mm-hmm. um, that was like just based really in nothing. Um, but we do know the autopsies will be done here in Spokane by the medical examiner's office. We're expected that that will be done today and there could be a news conference today, although um, I'll believe it when I see it at this point. And what's the feeling, uh, your reporter who's down there in Moscow, other than the students fleeing campus, what's the feeling amongst community members now that they're hearing, be vigilant, there could be a killer on the loose. Yeah, there's a lot of fear. Our, we've had reporters down there since Sunday. Um, there's a lot of fear among the students. There's fear in the community. I mean, it, you know, Washington State is 10 miles down the road, so the Pullman community is very much impacted as well. You know, people from Moscow and Pullman work and live in the, in the other communities and go back and forth, you know, quite frequently. So there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of confusion. Um, you know, there's there's grief. Um, at the end of the day, there is deep grief for these four students. Um, these are four, you know, three of them were kind of lifelong friends. One of them was a boyfriend who kind of came into this big close-knit friend group. I think the anger and the concern and the fear is what is, is was at closest to the surface. And now I think as this goes on, I just think, you know, the more we hear from the families and see pictures of these kids, the more that grief is really going to set in. It's a small town. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a small close-knit college town they've dealt with some pretty awful tragedies over the you know the 20 years that i've been reporting in this area um they will rally around the students i know that for sure but right now um i think i think the fear is permeating because um you know no persons of interest named no suspects in custody no descriptions um and and what appears to be a, just a really horrific crime on, on really innocent kids yeah and hearing too from the coroner that this was possibly a, a knife attack i mean that adds to that level of fear in the community that, hey, now if you're saying be vigilant and we have somebody who's capable of, you know, four homicides still out there, I I can only imagine, given that Moscow is so small. I mean, sometimes it's hard for us over here on the west side to imagine just how small and tight knit these communities can be as a college town. But, you know, I've seen this is a place where you would leave your door unlocked and you would feel completely safe doing that. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting. You know, I think when something like this happens, everybody wants to like find a way to explain that it couldn't happen to them. Right. I think Mm -hmm. that's human nature. Um, I was actually chaperoning my child's field trip yesterday and this is what everyone was talking about. It's just on everybody's mind. And, and people keep saying, well, well, they must've known someone. How could someone just get in? And I thought, you know, a lot of people, even in Seattle, don't lock their doors. You know, it's not something we don't we don't all live in fear. But when you're in a student community like that, this was this is just off the campus. This is as close to campus housing as you can get in an area that's surrounded by students. And and we don't know at this point if the door we don't know how the person got in. We right. don't know any of that. But um, but this idea that, oh, they must have let somebody in. There's no way people would leave their doors unlocked is just feels a little bit a little bit naive and a little bit victim blamey in some ways like. Um, these were these kids had no reason to believe that they were in any danger. And um, and I think that, you know, when you think back, especially to your college days, I think it's easy to relate to that as well. Yeah. What sort of lessons do you have for news consumers when it comes to reading about cases like this and, and avoiding misinformation? How do you do that when it's so rampant? 
It's really hard, Colleen, but it's so important. I mean, it's really what keeps me up at night is just how do we make sure that the truth is getting out there? There's so much noise surrounding this, um, not just from our own community, this, but this is a national and international story. So, I mean, even that the mayor of Moscow saying crime of passion, that's now the story that's taken over. That was in the New York Times. Because he's the mayor, I, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. And, I, mean, I, that and was... I, re- I read the article that day and I, and I said, Nothing in here is backing that up. There was nothing in the article that was backing that up. So I think just like if something seems wonky, go with your gut because it probably is. I also try to tell people all the time, the most simple explanation is usually the right, you know, what is happening now. And I'm trying to get the noise out of our reporters ears as well and our producers because it's easy for us to get caught up in it too. So, um, you know, I just think finding that, that source that you trust and, and try not to get down the rabbit hole because there's a million conspiracies out there already about this and a million other cases. And uh, I can say that uh, we absolutely, I absolutely trust KXLY4 News Now out of Spokane, my alma mater, News Director Melissa Luck. Uh, she leads a great team, and that's where you can get great information if you're following this case. So, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Time for your daily dose of kindness now, sponsored by Heritage Homecraft. When a concert violinist was diagnosed with cancer, she was told she would need a stem cell transplant to survive. Despite the odds, she found that donor. CBS's Carter Evans has the story. It's a performance Christine Chen thought she may never give. I remember feeling like, I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to make it. On the day she gave birth in 2018... A nurse discovered a tumor masked by Christine's pregnancy. So about 12 hours after my daughter was born, we found ourselves seeing an oncologist. Pretty wild. But her chemotherapy led to something extremely rare. So the treatment for your cancer caused your leukemia. She would need a stem cell transplant to survive, and a match within her own race would be ideal. But only 9% of donors on the nation's largest registry are Asian. It was hard not to feel despair and sorrow. In this case, Andrew was the perfect match, and we never looked back. Her perfect match, Andrew Chin. Hi. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> this is their first meeting since the procedure. I just hope that you know, you know that you're always, we always carry you with us. Yeah, it really hits home. It's like, wow, it's one person in the family, mother of two. And a concert violinist celebrating her second chance in a duet with her doctor. Carter Evans, CBS News, Los Angeles. Look who's in the studio. It's G. Scott from the G. and Ursula Show. What How are the chances? What is that you're wearing? I mean, it's a puffy coat, but it's a puffy coat that appears to be uh, patent leather. Yeah. Yeah. You like it, bro? Oh, I'm, I'm impressed by it. I, I don't know if I could pull it off. We might have to transition from shoes Dave, to winter coats. Mm, here's the thing, Dave Ross. You keep talking about that you don't know if you can pull it off. Yeah. The thing is, is you pull it off every single time. I look know. at Look at social media now. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at the way you rock the shoes. Yeah. You're right. Dave Ross. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Like, Dave, a lot of times you don't take advantage of your legendness. He really doesn't. You a legend, fam. Like, there's people to be listening listening to you. I post a picture of you. Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you about my Dave Ross. And he wakes <laughs> me up in the morning. And, and I go around. And so so there's somebody listening right now. I, ho- I hope that, so. That's the purpose of the transmitter up there on Tiger Mountain. There's have They have coffee and they have Dave Ross. That's right. 
And you know what I mean? Like, but yeah. this is not about me. This is about no, you. No, that's the thing. We though. always want to make it about him, and he deflects so great. Maybe someday I'll be a guest on uh, Gian Ursula, and you can you can uh, uh, pump me for all I know. But uh, let's talk about this. Can we talk about the crime in Tacoma where you live? Let's get back to the news. That's, that's a very good invitation. Thank you. I've been working on it for nine years. That's very good. Uh, according to the, the, the Tacoma Police Union, uh, this data-driven policing that Tacoma's police chief has talked so much about is not making people in Tacoma feel any more secure. Now, as a, you know, as a typical Tacomian, what do you, uh, where are you stand on this? Um, for the first time in a long time, I'm standing on the side of a police union. And I don't know what to say <laughs> about that. Yeah. Uh, the Tacoma Police Union, I believe, is correct in this situation. If you live in Tacoma, then you know that pff, crime, what, is way up right now. If you live in Tacoma, you know that the homicides in this year has like is a record breaking right now over the last few years. We only got a few weeks to go, like what, six, seven weeks to go in this year. Um, and so for the police chief to put that out there or talking about how crime is down and the police union to come in and say, oh, wait, 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 let me just tell you is interesting. Right. And it's also further proof of once again, once again. We can't take the word of what law enforcement tells us. So right in front of our faces, we have the Tacoma Police Union telling and saying, hey, wait, wait, wait. The police chief and the police Tacoma Police Department, those figures aren't accurate. Mm -hmm. So but are they saying the chief is making it up? I mean, what? Well, I guess the, the real question is, what should the Tacoma Police Department be doing to change things that they're not doing now. Well, the first thing they need to all be doing is being on the same page. So something's not right, right? That's the first thing. Number two, crime is, isn't just, let's do, I'm not going to pick on Tacoma. I'm going to, right now, crime post pandemic right now across the nation yeah. Yeah. is way up. What we are seeing, how things are happening and going down, it is at an all time high, right? So what needs to happen first is, these numbers and these figures and the Tacoma Police Union and the Tacoma Police Department, they need to be on the same page. That's number one. Number two, we still need to address crime continuing to get it, prevent it, get this thing happening to where we can stop it from happening. I don't care what anybody says. If something happens to your loved one mm -hmm. and the police show up after something has happened to your loved one. How does that help? Yeah, right. Only thing that happened is, is there was a police response. The goal is for something not to happen to your loved one. Well, and I think both things can be true. I both, think yes. hotspot policing can be effective, yes. but also crime can be really bad. So we also have to remember that the union has an agenda. They want more police officers. They want more support from the chief and the city council, more funding. So they're going to present a different picture than what the chief is presenting on specific 16 mm -hmm. specific areas where hotspot policing was happening. Both can be true. Yeah. Hotspot policing can work. And crime can also be really bad. Agree with you. And I'll piggyback on what you just said. I love how you put that, Colleen, of uh, both can be true. Both can be true. I'm with the Tacoma Police Union. Yeah. I want to see more police officers mm -hmm. in Tacoma, in Seattle. I, yes, I said it. I want to see more police officers. And I also want to do more to prevent crime. Both can be true. Right. And so when you have this happening, though, this is once again 
an idea where you see folks not on the same page with the communication as we have seen with the summer of love here in Seattle where you have leaders yeah. not on the same page. So you can't I mean, have preventing that. crime is when people see something, they trust the police enough to call them and, and say something, right? And also when cops get to know a community so they you know, they sniff something in the air and they take action to stop it. That's one part of it. But then you also have this other part of it, which which I believe there's two things. There is like people, the isolation of the mm-hmm. pandemic and coming out of it has has people really struggling. No like help. even, but even what do the cops do about that? Uh, they, 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 they can't. There's yeah. nothing the cops can do about that. And there's also nothing the cops can do about people struggling financially. And the unfortunate part is this. When you're desperate and I hope no one listening has ever been in a desperate situation where you're trying to get something financially. And I know you're saying, well, gee, I even know how desperate I was. I wasn't going to steal. Well, I didn't steal anything either. But I, that lets me know I didn't get to that desperation point. But you yeah. understand walking but up to that line and thinking I about it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because if you have kids, it's one mm-hmm. thing for you to be going through something. But when your kids and you see your kids are struggling, they can't eat. You see your kids can't have or anything like that. The things that go through your mind, you, you, you go to a weird place. Yeah. So I'm not justifying it. I'm saying that I understand. And post pandemic, what we are seeing, we're seeing a culmination of all of those things in front of us. So like Colleen said, excellent what she said, all things can be true. We need to attack these situations at all angles. But first, in the case of this story, we can't have this, right? We can't have, you have to tell the truth to the community. So if the Tacoma Police Department and the chief is saying, well, we're telling the truth, and the Tacoma Police Union says, well, we're telling the truth, well, there has to be a truth somewhere. That's what journalists are for. (laughs) <laughs> That's what Dave Ross and Colin That's what Dave for. Ross is for. G. Scott, 9 o'clock on Cairo News Radio. Thank you both. Excellent invitation. That missile went straight into a village in Poland and killed two people, originally suspected to be from Russia, which might have triggered a NATO response. Uh, well, now we're suddenly hearing that almost nobody thinks that this missile was from Russia. So let's go to CBS News United Nations correspondent Pam Falk now, who uh, joins us live. This this uh, missile killed two people about uh, three miles, I believe, into Poland. Uh, the question is, was it a deliberate attack? Was it an accident? What are you hearing at the U.N.? Yeah, there, there's a lot of concern about this, Dave. And... And a little bit of caution or a cautionary tale about the news that came out immediately. In other words, what we're hearing is both Poland and NATO this morning, echoed to some extent by President Biden, said that the missile strike, and this was the town of Preshevado, which is a little farther into um, Poland, said the missile strike um was that air defenses in neighboring Ukraine likely launched the Soviet-era projectile against the Russian bombardment that savaged the Ukrainian power grid. In other words, in the heat of hitting 100 missiles and about a dozen drones and trying to stop them from crushing the Ukrainian power grid, the Ukrainians launched this 
they use Soviet-era missiles mm-hmm. against the Russian attack, and and their missile was the one that went into Poland. And um, that's after an evening in which the U- U.S. intelligence confirmed that the uh, ru- that the attack was by a Russian missile crossing over from Russia. Mm-hmm. So that was wrong, and that leads the Russians to be a little bit more, see, we're never wrong. Uh, but they did hear from NATO condemning the war and the fact that NATO and the United States are blaming this entirely on Russia's unbelievable, the largest um, barrage of, a, of attacks against Ukraine since the war began. Okay, now, Ukraine has said that they still think, I think Zelensky has said, that he still thinks this was a Russian missile. Um, right. The, now, now, Poland is west of Ukraine. So if Ukraine was sending up a missile to stop a Russian missile, which would have been coming from the east, presumably, right? Right. Why right. would it end up in Poland, which well, is in the other direction? Well, um, as you know, territory in Ukraine is controlled, um, a lot of territory, mainly in the east, Mm -hmm. is controlled by Russia, but Russian forces are in Ukraine, so it could either have come from Russia or Russian forces within Ukraine. That's why it's so complicated. Um, But it was a Russian missile. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's but let's think, think this through. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the deliberate know, provocation like, yeah. that that started World War II, right? I mean, that was a right. a deliberate provocation. So, is is it in anybody's interest to have a Russian missile blow up in NATO territory? Uh, no, <laughs> that's an easy, short answer, Dave. The real issue here is, by the way, if you also, you know, really study the map and look at this poor Moldova nestled between, it really, it looks like it's almost in Ukraine, but on the Romania border, um, it their power went out during all of this. Uh, temporarily because so many power grids were shut down. It's now up to 40 or 50 percent of power in Ukraine is out. And we heard from a uh, the U.N. coordinator yesterday beaming in from uh, Kherson, and they had no electricity even before this barrage and nothing in the stores. So Ukraine is sitting there freezing with no electricity and no food and everything else that results from it, like water. Um, and or half of Ukraine, all of Ukraine, and this missile, these the, this this barrage, and it's the only way to call it. Of missiles came in, and uh, what NATO and Poland are now saying is that it was Ukraine's air defenses that that knocked this down, and it the missile may have come, they may have been aiming at a missile coming from Russia, if you understand mm-hmm. the drift, um, or from Russian forces within Ukraine. But it was the Ukrainians that shooting down this missile may have hit Poland, it looks like. Now, what you're right, uh, the Zelensky is now asking 
for access, which I do, I do not understand, I have to say, frankly, why he doesn't have access to the site. But they're asking for defense. Um, it may be that uh, NATO has taken over, Poland has taken over, and um, Ukraine hasn't been allowed in. But they want access to the site and a full investigation because they're not sure. I mean, it is a Russell, Russian rocket or missile yeah. that they found. Well, I so heard uh, who, sh- who uh, shot it down is the real is still the question. Oh, I see. Okay, well, I mean, I heard an expert saying that um, you got to find out what happened here because if this is Russia testing NATO's resolve and NATO shows that it has no resolve, that could be pretty dangerous too. Right, and uh, we do know the Russian playbook has been, in many cases, in Ukraine, earlier in Syria, to uh, fog, you know, the radar of a lot of different um, intelligence services to uh, basically make false flag operations, and they're accusing now Ukraine of having a false flag operation to start World War Three. So, um it's it's the facts matter and this is a time in our lives in the world when you can pretty much find this out apparently nato tracked um the missile so um, i would think so we got satellites everywhere so i I, i'm right i i am absolutely sure that we know exactly where this missile came from so now the only question is deciding uh you know what story to tell the rest of us not know that last night is part of the question well they're not Um, i don't think anybody tells the truth in time of war pam call me a cynic but uh they to to say believe me i'm as jaded as you are but so what um, i'm saying is whoever issues the statement is that it, it was a russian missile it's just who shot it down Right. But whether war starts or not depends on the contents of whatever statement we decide to issue. So the person who's sitting there, you know, with the pen poised above the paper trying to decide what to write, do I really want to write down here officially in this official document that Russia has just attacked NATO territory? Or should we come up with some way to say it was an accident? I think that's the kind of conversation that's going on. And and just to, to look at the hypothetical here, suppose it does, in fact, turn out to be that Russia fired a missile three miles into Poland. What would NATO's response be to that? Well, that's where everything else kicks in. In other words, NATO's agreement to defend NATO countries, but it's not a rush to judgment, even under the NATO treaty. So that's what people don't understand. I mean, first of all, they uh, at the moment of this action, the NATO treaty and Article 5 that everyone's talking about, that it says it has to immediately go to the U.N. Security Council because NATO is a treaty that is formulated under the U.N. Charter. Mm. So they have to go and say this is, you know, this is an act of um, aggression against a member of this alliance. And then they have to, and then they can meet, which is what they did do, or invoke Article 4 to say, what do we know? And how do we respond? And then they go to Article 5, which would be that all of NATO responds to Russia. And so um, it would have been a bit of a um, a thought-through process anyway, but now I think it's become a fact-based process. And you're right, there there could be all sorts of contortions because the world doesn't want to go to war. But, But they have to do something more than they're doing because clearly... 
I mean, half of Ukraine is in the dark and in the cold, and Russia really is destroying Ukraine and civilians and everything else. And here at the U.N., there's another meeting this afternoon that was already set at 3 p.m. on Ukraine. You'll hear a lot about this, um, and you may hear some Russian crowing, but you'll hear from the Polish ambassador, and um, they don't want it to come to Poland. So whatever else is true, they may not want the big war, but they also don't want attacks by Russia on their territory. And from the it's UN. very close. Yeah. Thank you, Pam. Absolutely, Dave. Good talking. You can ring my bell. Ring the bell. Does it seem like people have no manners anymore? Of course, my parents felt the same way. But there are still those among us determined to instill a sense of etiquette in a world full of boars and ruffians. Rachel Bell introduces us to the fifth generation of a family trying to bring back good manners. In 1922, at the age of 50, Emily Post published her very first etiquette book. And since then, there have been 18 editions published by five generations of family members. Now, 100 years later, Emily Post's great-great-grandchildren just released Emily Post's Etiquette, the centennial edition. Being the descendant of Emily Post, are people afraid to say things around you? They think they have to be their most polite selves? I'm quite certain this is why I am single still. That's Lizzie Post, co-author of the book and co-president of the Emily Post Institute. I think there's like this idea that there's a stuffiness around etiquette. Yes, very much so. Very much so. And my sailor swearing mouth usually cuts that short really quickly. <laughs> Emily Post's etiquette books are a fascinating and often humorous sociological look at what was happening in culture at a particular time. And this new edition addresses some very modern topics. When it comes to greetings and introductions, we really feel that it's important to talk about pronouns. It's really important from a, a standpoint of being respectful and considerate to the people around us that we don't just assume pronouns. I think this is something a lot of us are getting used to because most of us want to be respectful about other people's identity. They discuss the etiquette of when it's okay to hug and how to politely opt out of hugging. Hug rejection seems really awkward. The best thing you can do is if you're the one looking for a hug, ask, would a hug be welcome? If you ask and someone says, you know, a handshake would do just fine. Keep all that positive joy that you had for the hug, channel it right into your words, the expression on your face and that handshake. And it's not going to be awkward. If you're the one trying to block the hug, then as someone's opening those arms and walking right up to you about to embrace, you know, use your forearm, stick it out for a handshake. Or you could also take a step back and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I can't do hugs right now, but I am so pleased to meet you. I'm so happy to be seeing you. I think we can all agree the internet is the wild west of etiquette. Oh my gosh, I feel like the overarching advice for all things social media anywhere, no matter the platform, is think first before you post. Is this really what you want to say out to the world? Give it a beat. Give it a minute to think about it before you actually hit send. One of Lizzie's favorite chapters is called hard times. 
a section that guides folks on topics like grief. A lot of the times we don't know what to say and we can end up saying things like, well, call me if you need anything. And that actually puts quite a lot of pressure on the other person to engage the help. Whereas instead, if I say, let me know if you'd like me to drive the kids to and from soccer practice over the next couple months, I'd be more than happy to take that on if it would be helpful. Now, all they have to do is say yes or no. Concrete ideas versus vague offerings of support. Is there anything in the new edition that existed in the first edition that is so universal that you didn't have to take it out? Emily's description of a handshake where she talks about you don't want a bone crushing one, nor do you want something that feels like a dead fish is almost exactly the same way we say it today. The fork also is always going to be on the left. It does change over time. And yet the principles of etiquette, which at Emily Post, we believe are consideration, respect and honesty, these never change. And so there's like this part of etiquette that's really constant and stays the same. And then there's this part of etiquette that is always refreshing itself. And I just love that. Go to MyNorthwest.com slash Rachel Bell to get the book or have your etiquette questions answered on the awesome etiquette podcast co-hosted by Lizzie Post and her cousin. So who's responsible for teaching etiquette? Well, I was asking her, like, how do you know so much? Like, you know, to have like a couple people writing a whole book, like, how do you know all the rules for this stuff? And so that's not your question, but just a side note, they do bring in experts to assist them on various topics. Cause I was thinking, hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I think most people would say your parents yeah. is, and, and, and it, it's all like your household though. Cause not everybody has great etiquette. If your parents might be teaching you mediocre etiquette. <laughs> well, and I, I sort of, of course I was taught etiquette and I try to be polite and all that stuff. However, what I've found becoming a parent is that the etiquette of of yesterday is a lot about adult authority and respecting adult authority mm-hmm. almost to the detriment of children at times where they uh, learn to quiet their voice and only listen to adults no matter what. And I'm trying to reverse that and I'm finding a lot of the older population find my kids almost jarring when they are polite but firm in, in what they're, they're you know, to me, that's etiquette too, being polite but firm in what you're saying, like the hug thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. And that's been something that's come up over the past five years is, you know, your kids shouldn't have to hug Uncle Borat because he's getting weird. You know, they don't feel comfortable. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe etiquette changes and morphs that it's not always like old world. Right. And that's what this whole story is all about. I mean, that's why they have to keep updating it. And that's why etiquette's actually so interesting because it does give you this look at exactly what's important and what's going on in culture. Um, You know, one of the things he says or she says to always do is send your thank you cards. You know, things like that are old school. She said, even if you forgot to send your wedding thank yous and it's been seven years, just put them in the mail. It's okay. Just do it eventually. Mickey's raising kids. I I am raising kids. And in our culture, in our Latin culture, um, we do teach our children to, you know, we we hug and embrace. We do the Mm -hmm. is that should we not? Well, well no, the it, idea is part of your culture, then yeah. But, I know, but my but kids not. think it's cringe. Oh, but not. They don't want to learn it. They're like, Mom, that's cringe. Stop. Oh, well, it's cringe. It, the whole point of, you know, this whole thing is for kids not to feel uncomfortable. Some people don't like that much touch. Some people feel mm-hmm. like that family member, they don't really feel connected with them. So, you know, I don't know your kids and I can't speak for your family, but I do think that, you know, comfort level should ride over culture. So hugs are not etiquette, but how you deal with a hug or non-hug is etiquette. Yeah. Yeah. I just have one question. Who holds the door for whom now? 
I think anybody can anybody, hold the door right? for anybody. I mean, anybody if, for anybody. I hold the door yeah. for you all the time when I we enter the studio. But yeah? I know that's officially Does it not. make you feel uncomfortable? What's the rule? No, not at all. Oh, I don't know. I didn't read the book. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think, Dave? What do you want? To, do you want I, men to only hold doors, or what the do you only, want? The person who has the most free hands holds yes. the door for the person who's carrying something. That's I think that's perfect. I did hold the door for a guy one time, and he was like, absolutely not. Let me hold the door for really? you. Yes. See? Uh, so I think there's two categories of etiquette. I think there are these ones that are like, eh, that doesn't really matter. And then there's ones that people really can't figure out, you know, like grief. You know, there's a lot yeah. of ways that people don't know how to deal with grief, and they don't do a very good job. And that's where I think, like, a book like this or listening to the podcast is really useful. Um, one thing that I asked her that I didn't include was uh, as far as social media etiquette, uh, I recently, you know, posted on social media that I'm leaving Cairo. Tomorrow's my official last day. And I got a lot of messages, um, more than I could get to. And I felt this guilt that I responded to some and I didn't respond to others. And I left hearts for some people and likes for some. Should I have hearted everyone? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe people are going, who cares? Social media but we etiquette. all have our own different etiquette problems that we want advice on. Yeah. Rachel Bell. Thank you, Rachel. Please and thank you, Dave. Yes.